when you're in particular situations, sometimes you do become very aware that you have a gay voice because you can't hide it. People can hide certain traits and certain traits are their choice. Certain things are their choice. You can choose what to wear. You can choose a lot of how you want to present yourself, but you get coloured with a big pink rainbow and that colours everyone's impression of you, at least at first. Hi. You're listening to At Home In The Mind with me, Vika. This podcast was originally going to be called On The Road In The Mind, as in February, I set off to spend the last two years of my 20s travelling the world. Two years, however, quickly turned to seven weeks as the world plummeted into crisis following the coronavirus pandemic. For me, this was a huge loss, not only because discovering the world has been something I've always wanted to do, but also because I have come to believe it essential for my mental health. Much of my 20s was spent only looking out for others, totally neglecting myself in the process, as I have slowly been re-emerging and gaining self-awareness, talking to friends and family, I have realized that everyone at some point or other in life deals with major or minor mental health issues. Now that billions around the world are stuck in their homes, many unsure how to cope in isolation, I decided to invite some for a chat to talk through current or past issues and resolutions. My hope is that by sharing these conversations, someone suffering miles away will feel less alone and better able to help themselves. The more we know, the better we can equip ourselves with the tools we need to heal and seek help. Welcome to the fourth episode of At Home in the Mind. I am slowly recovering. In fact, so much so that I am finally out of quarantine. I was in quarantine for 14 days, staying well away from my fiancé and his parents. But yes, now I've been reunited with my fiancé, which is very nice after 14 days. But we are doing another week away from his parents just to be extra careful. My fourth guest is David, a data analyst who is currently residing in a little village in the north of England. As you'll hear, David gives incredible insight, not only into his LGBTQ journey. Oh, a cat just popped out. Hi, kitty. Hi, it's staring at me. It just keeps staring and then walking away and staring. I don't know what it wants. Not going to hurt you. It's very pretty. It's brown with some black stripes and green eyes. Hi. I think it doesn't want me to follow it, so I'm going to stop making it panic. Anyway, um, what was I saying? Yes, David gives incredible insight, not only into his LGBTQ journey, but also into what it's like to live as someone who is a topic. Just to give a sort of scientific definition, according to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma and Immunology, uh, which has a hilarious acronym of A-A-A-A-I, I... which is a noise you make when you're in pain, which uh, is very apt because, according to them, atopy refers to the genetic tendency to develop allergic diseases, asthma, and atopic dermatitis. Atopic dermatitis is a chronic form of eczema, which David paints a very vivid image of. In fact, it was very hard for me to edit this episode because... David and I talked for well over an hour about many different things, going into detail on basically all of them. So it felt sad to part ways with some of the topics we touched on. I hope that you find our chat as interesting as I obviously did. Before you go into it, as David lives in a rural village, I'd like to apologize in advance if the connection is not always clear. And as always, I'd like to stipulate that we can only talk from our perspective, fully aware 
that mental health affects everyone in different ways. Anyway, that's enough from me. You'll, you'll hear more from me at the end. So let's start, shall we? Hi, David. Welcome onto the show. Thanks so much for joining me very late. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm sorry to, to harass you after a long day of work. Oh, no, 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 no. My pleasure. My pleasure. In fact, I, it's my privilege to be on your lovely podcast. So thank you. thank you. We had a chat before this interview and I asked what you'd like to focus on. You made it clear for me that you don't think people will find accepting your quotation mark gayness as interesting. But I would like to touch on that briefly and then move on to what it's like being a vulnerable young person during this time, because a lot of people talk about the elderly quite rightly and protecting the elderly. But a lot of people forget that there are actually people of all ages who are vulnerable and who are having to deal with this maybe more acutely than others. So would you mind going into a little bit your LGBTQ journey and what it means when you say accepting your gayness? Sure, yeah, absolutely. So first of all, the reason I don't think it's as interesting is because I guess I've been quite accepting of myself for a long time and all of my friends have as well. And also in my lifetime, I've seen the world move on drastically. Obviously, it's still a massive issue around the world. And I feel absolutely privileged to live in a country which is, you know, at the forefront of LGBT acceptance and rights. But obviously, I know it's not the same for everywhere. But for me, I feel quite comfortable, definitely the most comfortable that I've ever had. Hence why I didn't think it would be quite interesting. And also, in the back of your mind, you're always a bit like, oh, I don't want to be one of those gay people who's always just going on about it. Because that's right. it's somehow drilled into you. One, I think it's the, it's the, product, the whole frozen, conceal, don't feel vibe. Yes, that was gay reference. <laughs> but um, yeah, I guess it's that whole vibe that gets into you from a very young age. You don't talk about trying to be as normal as possible. And it's quite hard to break that mold. So I haven't had what we would call in the LGBT community as passing privilege, which is where I can't really pass as a straight person. Okay. Yeah, it does mean that I've had to be a lot more forthcoming and deal with the issues from a much younger age than I know a lot of other people have. So I'm a lot further on my journey than some people might be. Just to make that clear, because this will be important, not only when we talk about LGBTQ, but also about your health later on, you only just turned 28. Yes. Yes, I did. Yeah. Happy belated birthday, by the way. (laughs) That was uh, Friday. But yeah, my LGBT journey kind of started like everyone does, but it was a lot earlier. I was outed at school when I was 13, which is still something which I look back and think that's awful. How were you outed? Do you mind going into how that managed? Yeah, it was kind of like an episode of Skins, actually. Like, I was <laughs> I was on a trip, a school trip in Belgium. Yeah, it was like that Russia episode of Skins. I admitted it to the guy that I liked. And then the next day, it was literally everyone. It was like the moment in Mean Girls when she sees everybody's talking. Oh, shit. And I was literally just like, oh, my God, I'm the Warhol carcass. So your, your crush told the whole school, basically. Yes, exactly. That's devastating. Nasty straight boy. No. Um, <laughs> 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 That's devastating. Because he was immature, because he was immature because he was 13 too. Yeah. I don't yeah. have that against him, but it doesn't mean that it wasn't any 
worse for me. I mean, to be honest, like people were already telling me from when I was zero years old that I was gay and stuff. So the worst thing for me was to actually prove them right. That really pissed me off because I was like, uh, you know, I, I just wish that I could have been like, no, you're wrong. But actually, they're all right. Mm. That really kind of made me a bit salty for a few years. But it's also because it's the way they they said that you were gay, right? It wasn't a celebration. It was a it was a derogatory way of saying it. Yes, exactly. And I remember people just used to flat out just ask me just out of the blue and just be like, David, are you gay? And it was when I was 12 or something and I wasn't ready to even tell people, but you don't want to lie. So it's just putting people on the spot. But kids can be so cruel. Like, oh, I, was a little, I was a little shit too. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember you telling me that maybe because of that moment or, or maybe even before um, when everyone was dictating to you what you were with before you were ready to own it or tell anyone about it. You told me that, that you just had this habit of acting straight and covering up your gayness, quote unquote. And it took you a long time to not be homophobic towards the camp side of yourself and the campness of other individuals around you. That kind of was another extension of not wanting to prove people right. I was like, right, well, fine, I'm, I might be gay, but I don't have to be the camp on or, you know, can fit in just as well as everybody else. And actually, that's quite prevalent in the LGBT community because there's a lot of striving for perfectionism because you don't feel like you're fully part of the society in which you live, which means that you try and excel in other areas. They'd be like, right, I might not completely fit in, but look, look, I can do this. So it's like a distraction and also like protection for yourself. This is quite a common thing that I've come across. And what was the moment when you sort of fully accepted yourself or learned to fully accept yourself? I mean, it was, a, it was a long time after that. Even when I was at like university, when I was 18, I was still trying to play it down. And even though every time I'd tell someone I'm gay, and they'd be like, oh yeah, we knew. It was a bit of like, like a slap in the face. Yeah. Because it would be like, okay, I completely know they didn't mean it like that. And I know it is obvious, but it's also it. <laughs> Because it's in your mind, and obviously I'm playing an armchair, <laughs> I'm just a psychologist here, but in your mind, you know, someone saying, oh, I, I knew you were gay, links back to those people when you were a child, pointing their fingers at you and telling you that in a derogatory way, rather than it being in our friendship group, what it was, which was, oh, we knew and we accepted you immediately. Yeah, I think, I, I think it was, obviously, for me, intention is 100% of everything, because I often say nasty things to my friends but in, in like a joking way but like you can, you can tell when, you know you can tell when someone doesn't mean it in a nice way and I think it's as much as me now being an adult but also society having moved on and people also being more aware of damage that that could do or just having more LGBT figures in their life and mm-hmm. sympathising more but um, sorry, going back to your original question, I think yes. the moment the moment when I really felt like I became who I was going to be and wanted to be was when I moved to Brighton. So after university, I went to Moscow to live and work. I had an awful time. I had a nice time in between, but my job was all in another language, which was super difficult to grasp, even though I've studied it for four years, but you know, you still... And you were amazing at it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I mean, 
honestly, they, there were no allowances given for like language or anything. I was like traveling around Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. I went on like, seven plane trips, seven days at one point. So I was tired, having to process everything written. And so I was going on these plane trips to education fairs and then talking to people all day, then getting a plane and then next place. And then would have to sleep a couple of hours, get up again, do it all again. So that massive toll on my mental health and that being my first job was really difficult because I didn't know what life was meant to be like. I didn't know what work was meant to be like. I'd always had it in the back of my head. I was just like, I don't even know what their mum and dad do at work. What are people doing <laughs> and stuff? And then, yeah. And then this compounded those things because they didn't give me any solid things to do. They were just like, you're good at talking to people. You're good at machine your relationships and stuff like that so they just packed me off on those trips which was too much to do but I felt that I wasn't good at anything else because they were physically telling me you're not good at anything else so I couldn't say no when I was 22 had no experience at all literally whisked around the world and paid like nothing for it but you don't know any better yeah so when I moved from Moscow I had massive blowout with the work with the company that I was working for basically it was a shouting match and whenever I see a little button which says recording it always freaks me out a little because I was in the airport in Astana in Kazakhstan getting ready to do another seven days worth of trip and basically I rang up my boss and presented my ideas and she laughed at my face like she literally laughed at my face and I burst and she was like I'm recording you so it does trigger me a little bit I'm, oh, I'm really sorry I'm so sorry <laughs> no it's fine it's just because there's definitely there's the little red button in the corner yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah it just reminded me of that for the first time in years but yeah so she was like I'm recording you and then she got on our manager who had been working with her for like 40 years so they were obviously in, in each other's pockets ganged up on me on, on a 22 year old to adults in their 40s and 50s um, and, and I think just to save face they just moved me to the head office which was in Brighton which I'd never been to before I'd say that was probably like one of the lowest points in my life I was abandoned in an airport with no direction of what to do next we're going to go back to Astana because I think that's where you had one of your scariest peanut allergy moments. But as is usually the case with horrible moments in upheavals is sometimes they lead you to a better option. And this awful upheaval led you to Brighton, which you say was your was the road to you accepting yourself and, and being happy. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's very true. I do count moving to Brighton as a key point in my life. And even though it wasn't all smooth after that, it was the start of a better career path for me, one that I was more interested in. And it was also the start of me being around more positive influences, which would ultimately lead me to be in a better position in relation to myself. Well, Brighton is the is the sort of LGBTQ mecca of the UK, is it not? Yeah, it is. I mean, I would kind of say it's a more of a retirement place for LGBT couple. I'd say London's actually got a better nightlife. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, but um, <laughs> it is a lot. It is very LGBT friendly. So I grew up in a very small village, which I'm in right now, and there are about a hundred houses here. So I I was literally the only gay in the village. 
I'd never seen LGBT couple holding hands down the street or right. anything like that. So I'd never had any exposure. Yeah. Everything is about exposure. Of course. Stuff. Of course, you're scared of what you don't know in the sense that I didn't know anything about being gay. So I was scared of being it and what it was. About. Yeah. Brighton was the first place that I was exposed to it and I saw people happy and all the gay couples, the whole spectrum. And I was like, oh, like these people are happy. Maybe there is some hope. Having an example of a relationship like your parents' relationship, but with LGBT couples, something you hadn't seen before, must have yeah, been. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And my parents are the ultimate couple. They're like one of those couples who were all-time love. They've been together for years, 30-odd years, and they're always going to be together. So at times it did make me feel a bit sad that I was like, am I not going to get something like that? You know, when you compare yourself to the best, then it's easy to get a bit down about you know maybe you'll never find something like that yeah The undercurrent of all of this throughout your whole life has also been all your ailments. Would you like to quickly summarize the list of all your ailments? <laughs> so I'm basically a atopic person, which means that you have ailments such as asthma, eczema, allergies. It's usually all or nothing with these things. And it's because you can either be topic or atopic, which is why it's not rare to have all these issues together because it's all related to the immune system. Basically, it's all linked to, I think, either an overactive or underactive, possibly, um, immune system. In my sense, it's overreactive. So okay. uh, basically, there isn't an issue, but your body is identifying an issue. And this is why the incidence of all of these ailments is rising in developed countries, but not in other countries, because scientists don't know for sure, but they kind of chalk it down to a bored immune system. The immune system in the past would have to deal with all kinds of pathogens, like eating dirt or animals. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't really exposed to much of that when I was a kid. We didn't have a pet. We had a cleaner come in twice a week, so the house was extremely clean. And so basically what they're saying is the immune system is bored. So it uh, overreacts to things that it doesn't need to overreact to. So stuff like inflammation, that's a response from the immune system. Inflammation on its own is good. You wouldn't heal without inflammation. But it's when it goes too far and starts producing too many white blood cells and it attacks, which is what I have. Like, well, that's um, the definition of analogy, right? It's an overreaction. To yes. So it's interesting that the first time you're exposed to the allergen in your life the first time i'll have eaten nuts i'm pretty 100 percent sure you don't react to it but that first time your body identifies right that, so as substance as something it doesn't want again so the second time you're exposed to it then it produces the violent reaction i've basically had all these things since i was born since i can remember right when i was five i ate a fuse chocolate bar in a party bag at a kid's party i don't think i remember fuse chocolate bars what were they like 
I think they're a bit like Snickers. I'm no expert, but, um, you know, not my favourite chocolate bar. But, um, yeah, so I had that. And then gradually we discovered I had all these other things. I remember the big bad, though, was always asthma when I was a kid. Okay. Like, eczema was bad, but a lot of kids get eczema, but grow out of it. Unfortunately, I haven't grown out of any of my thing, but... (laughs) lol (laughs) but a lot of them did get better my problem with a lot of my things is a lot of the time people don't take them seriously the nut allergies people have challenged me on it in the past and said oh but can i just eat nuts over here and it's like no and they were like oh but i ate nuts feet away from you the other day and you didn't react and that makes me so angry. That's really yeah, scary. Yeah, because one, why would you have risked that? Why would you why would you have risked that? That is yeah. the most selfish thing anyone could ever just because you want a friggin' nut. Why would you want a nut so badly to risk your friend's life? Exactly. Exactly, exactly. I wouldn't even do that to my enemy because it's an awful way to die. It happens a surprising amount. But this relates to the current situation where some people are still acting as if it's fine. Everyone's overreacting to this pandemic. I'm sorry, but that's like someone eating a nut next to you in the same room in secret, right? You are there. You're a vulnerable person. You're a vulnerable person. If this virus gets into your asthmatic lungs, forget it and there's people coming in and out of the house meeting whoever in the park not keeping the social distancing and that puts pressure on the on the nhs and then there's no beds for people like you or elderly people whoever's who is vulnerable and in need you're absolutely right to draw that parallel because it is exactly the same it's because it doesn't touch them so they haven't informed themselves about it but yeah until it knocks on your door it's very hard for people to react properly and actually fully comprehend what the consequences of this could be. I think we're so desensitized to things like this because we just see the news is just gloom and doom. And it has always been, as long as I can remember, it's always like this disaster, this has happened. And it's every single day. So of course, actually, it's quite natural for people to just switch off. You know, it's always everything's known in comparison. People are always comparing everything to that in their mind. It's like, it won't harm anyone if I go to go to work or something. Just pop in and get a few files. But yeah. really, it's it's so irresponsible. The thing is, it's all about control. With me. Yeah. I'm not here by the grace of God. By the grace of God, I'd be smitten down. I'm here because I take preventer inhalers every single day, twice a day. And if I run out by mistake, which I sometimes do because, you know, you might not notice. And I can I can feel it that day. I can feel it that day. I can feel the wheeze starting in the back and of my throat. And with the nut allergies, that's because I'm very good at avoiding allergens now. And people also have tried to make me feel irresponsible in the past because I do go out to eat. And that might seem irresponsible to them, but they're not going, they're not, they haven't lived what I've lived. I remember my mom, she, she told me when I was six or something and we discovered that I had all of these things. The doctor apparently said to her, David could live in a bubble, metaphorically, for the rest of his life. You could stop him living his life to the fullest, doing all the things that other people do, because really it is that serious. And I don't feel that 
anyone. It's rare the person that would grasp how serious the situation is. But that's because I don't present it like that. Everyone sees me as just getting on with it. So it can't be that bad. But really, it is. It's danger. It's constant danger. But yeah, I am very much in control of everything that's going on. I carry EpiPens everywhere too. From last year, I started basically carrying a crossbody bag. Thank God they came back in fashion. Yes. Um, but yeah, I started carrying a crossbody bag with my EpiPen in and it's perfect, perfect really? size. And actually, when I was looking up the um, the product on ASOS, someone had put in the comments, perfect for carrying an EpiPen in. And that was why I bought it. <laughs> yes, solidarity. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I was like, yeah, perfect. Absolutely the review that I needed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For the past year and a half, maybe even two years it's been now, the big bad was eczema. And the reason why that's scary from my perspective in the lead up to the pandemic is that you had to take steroids and that is an immunosuppressor, which is the last thing you need given you, you being atopic and given this pandemic. Could you talk us through a little how eczema, which a lot of people see as just this rash on your skin that's a little bit itchy, can affect your life in what ways and how it can make you vulnerable to this virus? Mm-hmm. Oh, where to begin? God, it has been the worst thing I've ever had to deal with in my life. Like other people would say, oh, but isn't it awful that you've got nut allergies and stuff? But um, I think this was worse because a nut allergy shouldn't unless you're unlucky, affect you in your life. And I know a lot of people who have nut allergies and they're like, have you actually used your EpiPen before? And I'm like, yes, unfortunately, many times. But it's not too common to actually have to use it. Whereas the eczema, I try and call it atopic dermatitis now because it's a kind of a different type. Like eczema is an umbrella term for lots of different skin uh, diseases. So um, atopic dermatitis is a chronic inflammation of the skin. Okay. When you think of eczema, it's just a little bit of dry skin somewhere. Whereas eczema, the way I experienced it was your body was reacting to something and producing inflammation, which then itched and then you would itch it and it would create great lesions on your body. And I had it all over. Going back to the start of when this flare up started, I moved to London two years ago and something triggered me, whether it was the pollution or the water, because I know water is harder in London. So my body started reacting and it snowballed. And that's part of the issue because it it starts slow and you're just like, oh, I'm a bit itchy. And then you scratch and then it's like, oh, oh, now I've got like a patch there. And, and then eventually, over the course of like a year and a half, I was already tackling the problem. I was like, I need to get like a, a water filter the shower i need to to x next get really up on my like creams and stuff so i made sure my skin was moisturized but i wasn't using the right stuff because i hadn't assimilated the knowledge yet because i hadn't picked it up when i was a child because i couldn't 
process it. So I actually didn't know how to deal with eczema as an adult. I got really good pediatric care when I was a child. Really, I felt really looked after. Mum was really supported. But then as soon as I was too old for the pediatric, then I was basically just released into the wild. I'm not dissing the NHS in any way. They're absolute heroes. But that was something which did lead to problems in later life for me because one, I hadn't been educated in order to look after myself. And two, I wasn't being looked after as, which I do need to be as a chronically ill person. I need to constant contact with doctors. I'm part of the dermatology unit at St. Thomas's Hospital now, and I, I'm getting treatment regularly, and that's how it should be. Yeah. Also, part of the mental battle of this whole thing is realizing it's part of you, and it's not going to go away. Yeah. Like when you've had a quiet period, you just want it to go back to that, and you just know how good it can be. And when you're in the midst of an awful situation, it's so difficult to know that it wasn't always like this. Having the comparison is, yeah. is awful. So the way it manifested, basically, it got to the point where I couldn't sleep at all because I was so itchy all the time. And my body was literally just red. My face was just puffy and red and it hurt. It got to the point where I, some points I couldn't even see very well because my eyes were puffed up. Um, like, the, like as if the night before you'd been completely beaten up, you know, when yes. the eyes well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember I went on holiday to Lisbon in the April of last year. and I went on a night out. And then when I came back after the night out, my friends were like, oh my God, what happened to you? I scratched my face so bad that there were literally cuts in my forehead. Oh, it my looked God. like I'd been like attacked by a werewolf. <gasps> and this, unfortunately, this wasn't the last time that that would happen. The worst part of it is you're scratching yourself. So you know that if you don't scratch, that you will feel better, but it feels so good to scratch it. Then it initiates a cycle of hate. That's part of the biggest battle that you do end up blaming yourself. And also eczema, I feel like eczema is also seen as like a child issue because it's most prevalent in children, which means that like an adult with it, that's a bit like, well, don't you have the self-control not to scratch yourself? And should you have grown out of this by now? Yeah. Like people would tell me not to scratch and I'd just be like, I'll kill you. Like, shut up. <laughs> don't tell me that. Don't tell me that. It was, it was the worst. It was awful. Honestly, I don't even think any words that I could use and describe how awful it was for me. I was, I hesitate to say depressed because it was, I know how awful that could be. But there were certain points when I was so low, getting up was awful. I hated myself for doing it to myself. My whole body was in pain. I was trying to go to the gym, but then my body was visibly hurt and yeah. scratched. And so people would look at me as if I'd been attacked or something. Oh God, I remember I dread taking a shower. Because I felt, one, I felt the water was the enemy. So I was like, I need to keep away from it as much mm. as possible. But it would feel good when I was in it because it was the only time my body was moisturized. Mm-hmm. And then I'd come out and just crack because water cracks. It dries you out, especially if it's hot water. Right. Moisturized properly. That was even just the iceberg. Because then in about September... I'd gone to the doctors in June and I'd got a referral for the dermatology in St. Thomas's in six months time. So I was just waiting for that. Then in September, I started getting hand and foot atopic dermatitis, which is a different sort. And the way that manifests is in blisters on your hands and feet. It was like the most maddening itch. You can't concentrate on anything else. 
Imagine every single activity that you do in the day. You can't sit and relax at all because it just goes through your mind. One little scratch and then it's like, oh, what have you done, David? My hand blistered to the point where I would find it hard to make a fist. My feet blistered to the point where I show people pictures of it and they're horrified. When I showed the doctor or when I went to go see them, they were taken aback. They were shocked and they're supposed to be used to in all their glory. Oh, yeah. And also at that time, I also started getting a dry scalp. So my scalp was itching like mad. So I couldn't, basically every part of my body was affected by this. So it was embarrassing as well because my scalp would be flaking off. And, you know, you'd be in a meeting at work and I was like, oh my God, oh my God, I need to scratch. It would just like come over me at every single point. I'd take up to three days off work. I wouldn't allow myself anymore, but days off work just just to sleep. If I could, I'd have to knock myself out every time. There was a time for about a good two months when it was in the, in the thick of the very worst where I knocked myself out every single night with night nurse, which is obviously not healthy, but it's the only thing that would help me get any respite. You explain it to people, but they can't understand, which means that it's super lonely. And also I can't count the amount of times that I was up in the middle of the night just Googling how to stop itching. And then I came across this quote, which I've never really forgotten, which I'm probably going to butcher it, but it was something like, pain gets old for the listener, but for the sufferer, it's always new. Mm. And it felt like I was just a broken record because I've been suffering with it for so long. Yeah, Um, I was talking about it, or at least I thought I was talking about it a lot and I didn't want to bore people. You know, people see me as like an outgoing person who's like, you know, a bit of light entertainment. Um, and I don't want to do anything to jeopardize that because, you know, that's my USP. So I don't want to be a moan. That's interesting because that goes back to you um, putting a front to hide your sexuality and yeah. not wanting to let it be known that all your intricacies and all your layers. Yeah, so it's interesting that, that behavior has carried through to this and as a fellow chronic pain sufferer I've dealt with chronic back pain since I was 11 it is crazy how the things that adults tell you or anyone external tells you gets sort of instilled in you and it does feed the self-hatred seeing doctor after doctor after doctor and being told different problems and being told that you're not looking after yourself and being told that you're responsible and that this would get better if you did just do the exercises, if you did just look after yourself, completely ignoring the fact that you just told them a regimen that you did for six years faithfully and the pain not subsiding. And therefore it cannot be that. So constantly gaslighting you and telling you you're wrong. Yeah. It does get into you. And so in the end, you don't want to talk about it and you don't want to do anything about (laughs) about it because you feel helpless and lost and lonely, very lonely. You're right to say that it's lonely. Also, I feel like I'm a very kick-ass person in general. And if I'm in a bad situation, I like to think that I will not be in it for too long because I take actions against it. When I was in Happy in Moscow, I was only in that job for nine months. And eventually I did take action and get out of that situation. When I was in... Brighton and then I was also in the job that I hated I moved out of that one pretty sharpish I like to think I deal with my problems and don't you know be like one of those people who moans about something and just moans about it indefinitely but doesn't do anything about it yeah yeah 
Whereas because the eczema thing was such a hard thing to deal with and I didn't know or have anything in my toolbox to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And also because it took such a long time to get the referral to the dermatologist, it did make me feel a bit helpless for one of the first times in a long time. And that was not a good feeling. No, I felt like while I was waiting for that six months, just went from bad to worse. Eventually from seeing the specialist, I got put onto therapy. Basically, the theory is that light helps dampen your immune system. And as I said before, eczema is an overreaction of the immune system. None of this is actually proven, but light has been used since the ancient Greek times. Cool. Um, Thankfully, I've seen huge leaps and bounds because of this. And also my strong understanding of which creams they really educated me about which ones were the right ones to use in particular situations you know I'm like whoop-de-doo this is great this is the most controlled I've been I feel like a normal person almost still not 100% but wow I feel like me again and I didn't realize that I wasn't me for a long time Mm. other people might not have noticed because I'm quite good at like putting on the show and yeah and also I realized that I did start to slightly depend on alcohol as well because I was in constant pain itching I wanted to feel the senses so when I'd go out I'd be like oh my god I feel awful so I just drink more and I'd end up kind of getting like blackout drunk I slightly leaned on that as well, yeah, that's why chronic pain in any form is really dangerous because you know, having that numbing sensation that any sort of intoxicant can give you and not feeling any pain when usually you feel pain all the time is a sort of holy grail. Speaking of you taking control and knowing what's good for you, you escaped London pretty quickly, knowing it's a dense population and that for you it's very dangerous, and went back to your one bench, <laughs> one bench town. How do you feel? Do you feel like you, you're having to calm yourself all the time, or do you feel quite safe where you are? Honestly, I feel like the confluence of events which have led me to right now have meant that I am in the best mental health shape that I have been in. A long time and it is hard to say that because I know that a lot of people are in awful situations but I think the solidarity is something that everyone can take solace in because mm-hmm. being isolated and by solidarity I mean the whole world is in on all of this I think that makes it easier for me at least because it means that people are showing their kind side it means that we are seeing the best in humanity it's absolutely amazing to see as I've told you I was in one of the worst positions of my life now I'm literally just come out of that so it's hard for me not to feel the best I have in a while because life was so bad before we compare it to the past year where maybe you weren't in isolation in terms of being able to go out and seeing your friends but certainly in your mind and in the pain you were feeling you must have felt very isolated and lonely so in comparison 
having everyone go through the same thing and everyone understands everyone's situation must be reassuring, massively reassuring. Yeah. I mean, I mean, not for nothing that I searched out atopic dermatitis support groups on Facebook. And that was a huge help to me because I was able to see other people's stories because I hadn't seen anyone with eczema as bad as mine. And then seeing doctors react in shock, yeah. it was a bit like, am I the worst there is? And then I was like, oh, you know, I'm bad, but like, you know, there are other people like me. And oh my gosh, I got so many good texts from them as well. Like I would have never known the apple cider vinegar baths help curb inflammation. Those really did help. Tips like this, I found out through other people who were in solidarity to me. Imagine if it was just the UK that was going through this or just one town. It would be awful. And it does make you think how awful it must be to have really awful diseases and have to go through that alone with no one understanding. I'm going to move on to the closing questions, if that's right with you. Yeah, sure. Great. Okay. What do you miss most about pre-isolation? I think you said gay bars to me before. Yeah, you know what? I, th- I think I probably would say my <laughs> gay nightlife. I enjoy it so much because I've never really experienced it till Brighton and it really made me feel free for the first time. And it's, it's like going to a place where you are the majority for once. There are so many moments in life that make LGBT people feel like an outsider. You know, it feels right. It makes me not feel like a freak anymore. But I guess being around other queer people. I think that's probably more the gay, less the gay bars, more being around the other quiz. Okay. What are you most grateful for during this time? Has this time allowed you to do things you haven't been able to do previously? There's so much I'm grateful for. Honestly, coming home was the best decision ever because I've got such a good family. I'm grateful for the fact that my brother's trained as a chef because we're getting cordon bleu um, meals. (laughs) Maybe not cordon bleu, but, you know, (laughs) I I don't want to get sued for copyrights. But, yeah, pretty, pretty goddamn good meals. And I'm grateful that I had this place to come to Mum basically was like, get home now, because she was worried, because I do have quite severe asthma. What is the first thing you'll do after all of this is over? I mean, there are so many things, which some of the highlights of my year, like going to all my pride festivals, which I was really looking forward to. That would be great. Oh, you were Um, meant to go to pride in in Canada, weren't you? Yeah, I was meant to go to Toronto pride and I was meant to see um, my friend. I was really so looking forward to it. I don't know what the first thing I will do is because I feel like it's going to be dribs and drabs. It's not going to be like, boom, lockdown's lifted. It's going to be, you're allowed to do this and now you're allowed to do that. So but, yeah. like I live my life at 100 miles a minute usually and yeah. this has forced me to slow down and I've realised I actually really like it. Yeah. So I think the first thing I'm going to do is force myself to keep the pace of life at this pace because I'm, I'm doing stuff but I don't feel the societal pressure to do so much stuff. And I'm at a good moment. What is your number one survival tip? Have a goal. I'm doing a lot, a lot of exercise at the minute. And actually, it's one that I wasn't able to pursue because my body was in pain the last time. Yeah. But that feels like a luxury as well. And use the time to do something that you've never had the time to do before or couldn't do before. And also dance. So, so Phyllis Dexter, every Friday night, 6.30 p.m., 
her and her wonderful, beautiful family put on a concert and it's like the kids are all crawling around the floor. She's singing Murder on the Dance Floor and and me, mum and dad have watched every single week. I think it's been going on for four weeks now and it just wow. puts so much joy into our hearts. Make, yeah, I, I never miss it, never miss it. And um, It's little acts like that that really help people get through because it's a little ray of sunshine. So dance... Dance with Sophie Ellis Bexter on a Friday. Murder on the dance floor, baby. <laughs> and with that, I'm going to have to leave you now to go to bed because it's late I'm and I'm so, really sorry. I'm sorry. I feel like I've chatted your face off. <laughs> no, no, I feel like I feel like I forced you to divulge all of your inner angst and uh, after a really hard day at work <laughs> and, <laughs> and all you need is sleep. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, it is quite cathartic. That's good. Um, I'm glad. To just, ha- to just have like an unbridled, an unfiltered kind of like moment where you just talk about it. Because, you know, I am in my eyes just out of the woods. Yeah. So I am in a period of like reflection of what I've gone through. Mm. And so it is important to talk about it. Well, I'm glad that you are feeling better thank you so so much for coming onto the show and for all your support in general thank you for hearing me out and thank you very much for inviting me on this is a wonderful podcast and such a great initiative so thank you very much to you That's the end of the fourth episode. Isn't David great? You can tell that this episode rambled on for a little bit longer than the others. And I'm very impressed if you lasted this long. I'm so grateful to all of you who tune in every week. So thank you. But yeah, David is really such a vivacious person. You really would not be able to tell that he suffers from any ailments at all. In fact, he recommended that you go join Sophie Alice Bexter's live dance party. But I would add to that and urge you to go to his Instagram page and witness his incredible dance moves. That's a little bit of sunshine right there. If you are suffering from any of the issues raised in this episode, please see the links in the description below. You'll also find there the link to my Instagram page where you can let me know what you took away from this episode. Tune in next week as I virtually travel across the Atlantic to New York, where I talk to a friend I made on my travels, Andrew. Andrew and I met in Puerto Rico in February, March, where we were both volunteering. We talk about living with depression and how best to manage it, especially in a time like this. Finally, as always, I want to thank my sister, Jenya, for the logo and constant support with this podcast. My fiancé, Jamie, for composing the theme tune and adding that all-important final touch to the audio. You can discover more of their talents on their Instagram pages. Links in the description below. And of course, David. Not only for generously agreeing to be on the podcast, but also for his undying positivity, which never fails to brighten up my day. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and that you'll join me again next week at Home in the Mind.